Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. It is so good to be with you, and we've got even better weather than last week. I just am blown away, so. I know. I'm coming back to life, much like the Pope said he did in Iraq. Yes. <laughs> we'll get to that later. <laughs> yes, it's it's good, to, it's good to see you. Hopefully, we can get back to, like, outdoor shows and events. Um, we mm-hmm. miss people. We miss seeing everybody uh, w- during the lockdown, but hopefully once quote this is all over we'll be able to bring bring the show on the road some more but in the meantime be great. Let's, what do we got this week <laughs> uh this week we are talking to josh packard he is a sociologist studying religion and new forms of religious expression uh and he's the executive director of springtide research group which published a really impressive report recently yeah the report's titled the state of religion and young people in 2020 and it's really the largest report of its kind i will say that Young people and religion is something that people are are, are full of takes about. Um, lots of opinions about why the youths aren't being religious anymore. And not a lot of people actually stop and listen to what young people are saying about that claim. And so someone like Josh and the group at Springtide, they are really, you know, doing scientific studies, like qualitative and quantitative, um, to figure out what's going on with this with this demographic. Yeah. And since we talked to Josh, he actually came out with a new report that focuses specifically on young Catholic people. Uh, So keep an eye out for that. Uh, But I enjoyed doing this. I mean, we're (laughs) in church terms. We're no longer the young Catholics being studied. So so this focuses mostly on on Gen Z. So, you know, as a millennial, it's it's nice to not be under the microscope anymore and to have to read these reports and find out what's going on. (laughs) It's true. We can just sit back in our and our laughing joy emojis and middle parts and, and, and look look at what's happening with the new generation. Uh, but before we get to that interview, uh, I, I was going to say what our drink is, but we are still we are still fasting from alcohol for Lent. Um, so uh, but St. Patrick's Day is coming up next week and longtime listeners of the show will remember that there is a dispensation. We will explain more about that later. But first, we have a few words from our sponsor this week. So I think all of us can remember those moments, uh, either in school or in life, where you, you see something or you have this fact and, it, and, and the light bulb goes off, right? Right? We call those these aha moments, you know? Um, well, I, I have been lacking of those in my in my pandemic life. I feel like I'm just doing the same things over and over again, and I want more. I, I feel like I'm not learning mm. enough. I don't know if you feel similarly. Yes, I do. <laughs> well, good news. With our sponsor this week, The Great Courses Plus, you can have all kinds of aha moments because they've got thousands of courses that are with, you know, the na- the world's top teachers. Um, and I, one we're going through this week, I actually thought had a pretty good aha moment. Yes, we are 
working our way through the course, The Holy Land Revealed. It's uh, taught by Professor Jody Magnus, who's an archaeologist, but she brings a very uh, deeply religious and historical lens to to the Holy Land, the place where Jesus wa- walked in before him, um, you know, the, the land of the scriptures uh, that's just so steeped in history and is especially important in this time of Lent. Well, and speaking of Jesus walking and water, for that matter, (laughs) my big aha moment was about the Sea of Galilee. So first of all, that it's the same as Lake Tiberias. So if you see either of those mentioned in the gospel, same place. Also, just, and I encountered this when I, you know, was there. The sea is really just a basically the size of a of a small Wisconsin lake, as I would put it. Which I don't know. I had always imagined this vast ocean that you couldn't see the other side of. Um, that's not true. Which I think was a big aha moment for me because it really just made me think that Jesus would understand my Midwestern roots a little bit more, right? So maybe he can also connect with things like Ohio State football and hot dishes. Yes, I'm sure he could. <laughs> but listeners, if you want to have your own aha moments check out The Great Courses Plus and you can get a whole month of the courses for free when you sign up and go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Jesuitical. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Jesuitical. And now we've got Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So it finally happened after lots of anticipation and wondering whether or not it was going to take place. Um, Pope Francis uh, went to Iraq. Um, he's back in Rome. Uh, and it was a whirlwind of a trip um, that's coming. You know, we're ta- you're know, you listening to this on, on Friday, presumably, when it comes out. And Saturday, this Saturday is um, the eighth anniversary of Pope Francis being elected. And, and this trip to Iraq, I think, is going to be, you know, there were so many images that came out of it, and we're going to get into them here, but this is going to be one of the defining moments of his papacy, I think. Yeah, he had two full jam-packed days in Iraq, um, and it's too much to squeeze into one uh, Signs of the Times story. So we wanted to to pick two that really capture the major themes of the trip, which were, one, outreach to uh, the Muslim community there, and two, encouraging the dwindling Christian population in Iraq. So first, let's focus on the outreach to the Muslim world. Um, so... The Pope made history by sitting down to meet with the um, Ayatollah al-Sistani, who's the spiritual leader of Iraqi Shia Muslims. And um, context, if you if you don't know, this is 101, but Islam has two major branches, uh, Sunni and Shia. And over the past couple of years, Pope Francis has spent a lot of time dialoguing with the Sunni world. Um, he you know, met with the influential Grand Imam al-Azhar in Abu Dhabi in 2019, and that meeting is what has inspired um Francis's encyclical uh, Fratelli Tutti. Um, and in Iraq, he had sought to complete his embrace of the Muslim world by meeting with one of the most revered figures in Shia Islam, the Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani. Yeah, and this was this is a big deal. Uh, the Grand Ayatollah is 90 years old. He hasn't really taken meetings with religious or political leaders in over 10 years. Uh, and he met with the Pope for 45 minutes, which was twice as long as they had um, scheduled to meet. So I think fair to say it went well. It was it was a private meeting, so we don't know exactly what was said during the meeting. But afterwards, both sides released statements praising the encounter. The Vatican said Pope Francis thanked al-Sistani for speaking up for vulnerable populations um, in Iraq during ISIS's reign of terror. And al-Sistani also said that they talked about building peace, fighting for for freedom in Iraq, um, and building bridges between religious communities. I was, um, I was shocked that uh, I heard on Inside the Vatican that 
after the meeting, like right after it happened, the Iraqi government announced that that day would be a national holiday yeah. um, from then on. So like every year, the, the Iraqi people are going to be like thinking back about this meeting. It was it, it was a huge deal. Yeah. They also they made a stamp commemorating the moment with both of their images on it. So that kind of speaks to how important this was to the people of Iraq. Yeah. Um, on the flight back, um, Pope Francis is known for spicy plane press conferences. Uh, <laughs> there, It wasn't that spicy this time, but um, he did kind of want to preempt any of his critics who think that he by like dialoguing with the Muslim world, he's somehow watering down Christianity. And he, you know, he pointed like, you know, I'm doing this. This comes out of my. Uh, my prayer life, like dialogue is totally consistent with what the Catholic church should be doing. And it's totally consistent with what the second Vatican council taught. So put his, his, his foot down on, on the naysayers. Right. And that was just one event of, of this whirlwind trip. Uh, so now we want to talk a little bit about his time with the Christians of Iraq. Um, so this is a population that has been just decimated since really 2003, when the U S invasion um, uh, brought, know, armed conflict to this country. And then again, between 2014 and 2017, when the Islamic State took control of large swaths of especially northern Iraq. So Pope Francis on Sunday went to Mosul, a a city that used to have, I think, like 50,000 Christians. And now it's down to a couple of dozen Christian families. And there he participated in a prayer service for victims of war. Um, and in this really striking image, it's this square in the city where each corner has has a church, uh, both Orthodox and Catholic. So there he, he prayed for um, all victims of war. Yeah. I mean, just that's one of those images that, uh, you know, I talked about at the top where that is going to stick with me for a long time. Um, so if, you should definitely look it up if you haven't. It's hard to describe over audio how, how moving it is. Um, and then the majority Christian city of Karakosh, the Pope visited another church that had been desecrated by ISIS, um, and it's being partially rebuilt. But uh, he 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 did a call to his uh, namesake, uh, Saint Francis of Assisi, who also uh, had some very important dialogues with the Muslim world, and he said, "This is the time." to restore not just buildings, but also the bonds of community that unite communities and families, the young and old together. So I, I call back to when Francis of Assisi heard, you know, Francis rebuild my church, but he wasn't talking about a building necessarily. Oh man, I didn't catch that. I, I mean, I'm, I'm reading into it a little bit. I'm editorializing. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. So <laughs> historic trip, lots to unpack. Maybe just a couple takeaways here. I, I was watching this and while it was moving to see these images and and the sheer joy on the Iraqi people who were at some of these events. I, I was mindful that, you know, even as we're turning a corner a little bit here in the United States with the pandemic, Iraq is is not is not there yet. And it is still very much active and cases are spreading. And there were lots of images where people were, you know, inside churches, sometimes masks on. They were outside, sometimes masks on, masks off. And like people just come out to see the Pope. That happens wherever he's going to go. And so I'm really worried that we're going to see a huge outbreak in cases after, you know, in in the week or two after this. Yeah, I, I think we wait and see. Um, it's undeniable that this w- was extremely important for the people of Iraq themselves. After after the trip, uh, Catholic leaders there called it a miracle. Um, if you if you listen to Colleen's uh, interview on Inside the Vatican um, with a young Catholic woman there, um yeah, you can you can just hear the the hope that this trip gave her for the future of her for her country. Um, 
So they're they're I don't know how to talk about these trade offs and risks. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like both things like two things can be true. Right. Like uh, and we have a hard time with that, I think, sometimes that this was a risky thing. And, you know, maybe he it, he could have waited a little bit longer um, to go. Um, but because of the risks, it will also mean more to the people of Iraq who, like, quite frankly, like pandemic aside, have had their lives threatened for the greater part of, you know, more than a decade now. And so, as as Jerry said inside the Vatican, like, this is their moment of joy. And it it was really inspiring to see. What's our next story, Ashley? So it's not every day that a relatively obscure Catholic priest gets a primetime spot on MSNBC. But last Friday, uh, the same day that Pope Francis touched down in Iraq, Rachel Maddow, um, who is Catholic, dedicated a segment of her show to Father Emile Capon, uh, a Catholic army chaplain who died in captivity during the Korean War. Yeah. So Father Capon was born in Kansas and was a chaplain in World War II and Korea. Um, he, he died at 35, very young. I was shocked by that kind of. Um, and mm. he, He's already received the Medal of Honor, which is our nation's top honor for military service, um, and he's been declared a servant of God. Um, and he's really, you know, I guess, f- quote unquote, famous for the thing, the things he did after he and a group of soldiers were taken into captivity in 1950. Right. So he was with a battalion that was surrounded by Chinese forces. They were uh, forced to march in terrible conditions and then held in, in captivity. Um, and during that time, he, you know, he was not only helping wounded soldiers physically, but spiritually saying masses um, and the people who were with him and survived, which he did not credit him with saving hundreds of soldiers lives by, you know, keeping up morale while he was there. So why this is back in the news now is that uh, on March 4th, the day before the Pope's trip, the U.S. military announced that they had identified the remains of Father Capon 70 years after he died ministering to these soldiers, um, which is kind of amazing. Yeah, it's really, really remarkable. Um, and we've it's just fascinating, the process, the sainthood process. You know, we've talked about that on the show and how long it can take. Right now, he's a, he's a servant of God. And there two things are really left before, if that's, go, if that's going to move on. Um, there are some people working very hard to, you know, pray to him and push his cause forward at the Vatican. But basically, the Vatican has to investigate his life and, you know, determine if it's, you know, worthy of moving on to the next step, which would be beatification. So, he would be blessed. Um, and then we got to pray for some miracles. Um, we got to ask him to say some prayers, intercede for us on earth. Um, and, when that when is that going to happen? You know, God only knows. It's unclear some, on the timing of these things. But we've got a couple. We've got a really interesting story at America that we'll link to in the show notes about some Kansas priests today that are working really hard to you know let more people know about Father Emil's story. And so you can read that at americamagazine.org and just you know click on that the notes in your podcast app. Click over from there. And now stick around for our conversation with Josh Packard. Greeley, Colorado, is Dr. Josh Packard. Josh is the executive director of Springtide Research Group, which recently published 
the State of Religion and Young People 2020, the largest report of its kind. Welcome to Jesuitical, Josh. Hi, folks. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for taking the time. Um, Well, I'm old enough to remember when people were interested in millennials, so this kind of makes me feel old that (laughs) y'all have moved on to the next generation. (laughs) Yeah, that's the the, uh, the oldest millennials are having Gen Z already. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. Okay. So like what, what makes this, what makes generation Z distinct from previous generations of young people who we, you know, people are always studying what's going on with kids these days, mm-hmm. um, specifically in the realm of, of religion, spirituality, what, what makes Gen Z stand apart? Well, every generation brings with it, you know, its own distinct attributes and characteristics, but there's, there's one thing sort of before I answer the meat of your question, one thing to understand about Gen Z is that there is no Gen Z. This is the most diverse generation America has ever produced. And so the notion that there is a thing or a set of things that can characterize even broadly the entire generation is just not true where it might've been true for Gen X and maybe even millennials. And certainly before that, uh, we, we just, the, the key to understanding Gen Z is to understanding just the, the incredible amounts of diversity present in their lives. And therefore the complexity that comes along with that. I mean, that not just in the traditional sort of race and, you know, ethnicity kind of uh, ways, but in every conceivable way, especially when it comes to identity. So that's, that's key. Along with that, though, I think you do look at the trajectory of what's been happening over the last couple of generations and where, where what we find here is that this is this is a generation that's going to be a generation of assemblers, where millennials and the generations immediately before that were largely turning away from social institutions, and we've got good data to prove that, and, and sort of deconstructing them, taking them apart, rejecting them. Millennials are not going to turn back to them because there's nothing to turn to in their uh, or turn back to in in their regard. Um, you know, I, I say a lot. They're not leaving the church. They were not raised in it to begin with. They don't have anything to leave. But instead, they're going to be building things, and they're going to be doing that with the bits and pieces and fragments of the institutional lives that have been left behind for them. Now, this new study comes on the heels of a March 2020 report you guys did called Reconstructing America's Loneliest Generation. So what are some of the stats behind behind that for Gen Z? Yeah, so that... that publication belonging it was our it was the first one we did at springtide because we we've seen this epidemic of loneliness among young people the cigna the big health conglomerate was the first one to document this and scholars have been tracking loneliness now for decades and it's always as you can imagine the oldest generations that are the loneliest um for reasons that i think are pretty easy to understand except until now this was the first time ever that uh that we that we see the youngest generations saying that they are the loneliest. They, they're the most isolated. And, and even though they are, they seem to be and are hyper-connected on their devices, that connection isn't leading to much real belongingness. But some of the stuff we found was just startling. You know, like upwards of one in four to one in three young people have one or fewer adult in their life they could talk to if they needed to, or at least that's how they feel. Um, the, that's, a, that's a stunning number that includes their parents. We found a complete disconnection. This is not terribly surprising considering what we were just talking about with regards to institutions, but a disconnection between attendance and belonging. So just because they're showing up somewhere doesn't mean that they identify with that place or that they feel like they belong there or that they have a part of their identity wrapped up in that place. So it really calls for, I think, a whole new way of approaching young people, especially when it comes to religion, but but from any institutional perspective. So in terms of a new approach, you kind of in this report 
push back against the settled categories we're used to when we're talking about the quote unquote nuns, the unaffiliated people. Um, you you kind of talk about how those labels of affiliated or unaffiliated don't really tell us enough. So so what what was your approach to kind of laying the boundaries in terms of identity and religion? So for a long time, you know, I, I think it, it worked really well to, to sort of find out if somebody was affiliated, you know, if they said, I belong to the, you know, to the Jewish faith, or I attend this, this uh, congregation, you know, I am Catholic. And, and we could assume a whole lot of things about them pretty correctly, based on that one piece of information. And so in a lot of ways, the affiliation question acted as like a proxy for who that person was. And the same thing was true for those who were disaffiliated. If they weren't into religion in any particularly formal way, then we could assume pretty correctly a whole bunch of things about them, what kinds of rituals they weren't engaged in, what kinds of books they weren't reading, et cetera, et cetera. The diversity that we see present in this generation and combined with the lack of trusted institutions means that their faith lives are incredibly complicated and that those those categories that once used to tell us a, a whole lot about somebody don't really hold anymore. So, for example, we see... If we just carve out the pieces of the data, you know, we did over 10,000 surveys for the state of religion and young people 2020. And if we just look at those who claimed a religious affiliation, we still see that over half of those young people say they have little to no trust in organized religion. So unaffiliated young people, we would assume are not spiritual. We would assume that religious values don't govern their daily lives and on and on and on. But we see that that's not necessarily true. So lots of unaffiliated young people express a real openness towards religion. They they are allowing their religious values, as in their words, to in- influence their daily decisions. And so it requires us to sort of do away with those old categories and and really think about you know where are their actual practices and beliefs. You know, what are young people actually doing when it comes to religion, and, and how can we meet them there? So maybe it would be helpful for me and listeners to just, can we just like create a caricature of one <laughs> yeah, of these sure, people? Um, so, all right. So let's just say I'm, I'm, my name's Zach. I'm probably 15. I check that I am religiously unaffiliated on uh, some survey that someone gives me. Mm-hmm. What are some things that I might still believe or incorporate into my life that um, adults today might find surprising. So uh, what we, a, a lot of people will, st- we see a lot of a high percentage of unaffiliated young people who are still like, you're probably still reading some scriptures. Um, even if you don't, even if you aren't necessarily doing it in a sort of ritualistic way, um, you're very curious about what's in those holy books um, in those sacred texts uh, so that you, you want to be informed about them because the, the identity that you know, that the identity that you're claiming right now is not necessarily the one, that is going to stick with you forever. And, and what maybe let's do the converse of that. Um, let's say I check that I am religiously affiliated. What are some things that are, am I also still potentially in the seeking phase? Yeah, I think that's that's definitely where the overlap comes. Like on those Venn diagrams, right? Is that there's a lot more people who are fluid in those things than not. I think the the biggest misnomer if somebody says that they're affiliated would be to would be to think that they necessarily agree with all the teachings of of that particular religious tradition. Right. You mentioned something. So for my generation, millennials, uh, we were the first one, first generation where people really started talking about the nuns. But we come from we come from parents who basically went to church mm-hmm. and kind of raised us in it. So with this new generation, that might not be the case. Um, yeah. How does that play out? 
and like when they are trying to to rebuild um what are they where are they drawing from i think that's the million like <laughs> i mean that is the million dollar question right Ashley? Like, like that is a large part of what we're trying to figure out in 2021 because we were frankly stunned by some of this data that's coming out in 2020 here's what we do know mm-hmm. first of all the like it immediately means something about language Right. So, so some basic things that if somebody's, if somebody has been raised in, let's say, the Christian faith, and we'll take Catholic context, basic language around confirmation, sacraments, the, the Eucharist, those kinds of things, that's not going to make any sense to anybody. Um, increasingly won't make any sense to young people. I, I teach the sociology of religion um, and have for the last 10 years or so. And I've, I've been able to see that with my own eyes. Like every year a, a crop of students comes through that it seems like my classes know, in, are increasingly less familiar with those terms. Is it is it just like a lack of, they haven't been taught it before? Or, or are there concepts that just don't connect the way that they used to maybe? They've literally never seen or experienced it. Okay. Right. So they, like when we go on field trips in my class and I take students to a mosque and I take them to a synagogue and I take them to a church, the number of students who say this is the first time I've ever been in any one of these buildings is just, to me, you know, is sort of like mind blowing. But to them, they're like, why would I? You know, that's what I mean by like wrapping your head around this idea that, that they're not leaving something. They didn't have it. And I, I think that the, the shift there is, is critical, right? So if the idea is that we're going to get them back, okay, then, then I think it calls on you to do different things than if the idea is that you, you're going to be there as they're exploring. <laughs> so the goal for people who like, you know, want to have some influence in the lives of young people should be to retain a seat at their table for as long as you possibly can while they're making up their mind. And as opposed to the sort of like, let me lay out for you every tenet of my faith and you can take it or leave it. You know, like that's just not going to bear much fruit. I was just about to say that, right? We, we haven't we haven't screwed them up yet, so we, we've got a chance to win them over still. Yeah, but an optimistic take on that, I guess, would be that there's less baggage for this generation. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that's entirely possible. Actually, that that yeah. uh, you know, in the gulf or in the absence and the void of a narrative, another one will creep in. So, yeah, maybe they haven't been personally hurt by church, but uh, you know, I'm sure they are filling in that narrative with other stories from media and people around them and things like that. So, you know, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a blank slate, but maybe there is opportunity there. Right. Because we do, uh, some of the surveys you uh, shared in your report show that I I found this a little insulting that (laughs) they ranked um, religious institutions under both banks, um, uh, schools, and what was the other one? Oh, healthcare. (laughs) Like, oh gosh. (laughs) But look, that's a, I think this is, for me, this is the million dollar insight. You know, it's the the church has been telling itself a story where it is the central player in, in, the, in the play. And, and that makes sense. That's how we all tell stories. But when, when a sociologist like, like we are come along and we look at all this data, what we see is that the story here is about the decline in institutional trust across the board. The church isn't doing anything wrong any more than anything else is doing anything wrong. It's, it just is the world that we're living in now. And so that, I don't mean to quibble about the diagnosis here, but the diagnosis changes what we would do about it. And it sort of necessitates, I think, that we that we don't lead with our first foot forward being like, look at how old our institution is. Look at all the credentials I have from this institution. Look at the title and position I have and the expertise that I've been given by this institution. It just doesn't hold any water with you. So the things that do, what, what comes clear, pretty clear in the report is that it's not about institutions as much as it is about people and relationships for, for young people today. Um, and I wonder... 
what kind of relationships are are the most important to today's young people? And I guess what makes that different than young people previously? Because it seems to me like that's always been sort of, uh, if you know, one of the most important things in someone's life. Yeah, for sure. I think the the difference here, though, is about what what sort of structures that we can count on, you know, to fill in that gap. I mean, it's of course, like relationships are vital and always have been for everyone. You know, 25, 30 years ago, you, you know, maybe when when I was growing up, you could sort of count on these institutions as sort of like ultimately stepping in to write the situation. Uh, you know, young people always resist categorization and to some extent always feel like they're being left out. But there were enough of these connections and ties that would sort of bring them back in. In fact, for so long, it was almost a, a, a like a cliche that people would, you know, be raised in the church, they would go to college and drift away in their early 20s, and then they would come back when they had kids. But like, we can't count on that pattern anymore. Increasingly, that's just not happening. Um, and in some point, at some level, it's because of the loosening of these bonds. Now, you can Look, I give a lot of presentations and people in the audiences, you know, sometimes will say like, you know, they, they will blame social media for that or they will blame uh, society in general for that or TV or whatever. And you can blame whoever you want to, whoever you want to blame. But the reality is like, that's the situation is that we need to be making efforts to go where young people are. We can't expect that they're going to come to us uh, at any regular point. Well, and I think what's interesting for particularly church nerds or liturgists is oftentimes the problem is framed in terms of do we have the right kind of music at mass do we have a website do what's our social media strategy can we get a millennial in here to do a twitter for us and instead it's really just as simple as like do you know five young people's names (laughs) in your parish five five that's the magic number yeah wait why five (laughs) so no it really is i mean it's the um youth ministers that we talk to well because we do we're doing focus groups have been for for months now with youth ministers across the country and you'd be stunned at how much that number five comes up and they're right on the money this is exactly what the research shows is that if you can get a young person connected to five adults who care about them then their risk factors for you know uh, unplanned pregnancy dropping out of high school drug use suicide etc they all fall off a cliff you know, it's, it's remarkable. Um, after five, of course, there's still a difference. Like the sixth one matters and the seventh one matters too, et cetera. But, but that is the real key threshold is getting to five. Um, so when you hear that 25% have one or fewer, you know, that's alarm bells right there. I, I think about my own, this is true in my life. Like youth ministry, like really like kept me in the church, um, in my home parish. And it wasn't because of, anybody partic- saying anything particularly compelling doctrinal wise um, <laughs> or that, you know, our liturgy was so, so stunning that I was knocked off my feet by the true, the good and the beautiful. But really there was just a group of people around that were committed to just like staying involved in my life. Right. Like, and they didn't need to be young, hip and charismatic. They just needed to care and ask about me. Mm-hmm. Yes. That, that sounds exactly like what we hear, you know, we've got, transcripts of interviews filled with, uh, you know, young people saying basically the same thing. In fact, so at Springtide, our focus is always on 13 to 25 year olds. And so we don't ask obviously the same questions to 14 and 15 year olds that we're asking to 24, 25 year olds. Um, but it allows us at some level to sort of see how that life, you know, the sort of life cycle plays out. And the ones on the older end who have been, who have been involved, I mean, they say, they tell us a similar, a very similar story to yours. It's, it's always the people that matter. Like, you know, we just, I don't think, I don't think we heard a single story from a young person who said that they were, 
they were so compelled by the exegesis of Matthew that they just you know had to stay mm-hmm. engaged. Unfortunately, I'm sorry if you're if you're a pastor out there and you had thought that you're listening to this <laughs> and you had thought that your homily was what was keeping people people in. But we're here well, to tell people, you, it's maybe, definitely I don't not. know. I just know 13 to 25 year olds. Oh yeah, maybe, okay. You know, yeah, yeah. Zach, be real. It's like a cute girl in the uh, youth group. That's true. Yeah, cute. Yeah, my my wife, my now wife, happened to be in the youth group too. So that didn't that didn't hurt. Um, there we go. But what are some? You know, I, I'm imagining there's someone listening to this going. I I really care about whether, you know, young people are involved in my religion, church, community, whatever. Um, but I don't really know where to start to, yeah. you know, be a better presence in their life. What advice does this report or Spring Tide have about someone like that? Well, I th- one of the things that blew me away was the... Uh the consistency with which young people would tell us in the interviews, and then we started testing this in the surveys, um, without us giving them this language, they would just sort of stumble upon it, basically saying some version of, I don't want adults to be my friend. You know, they, they would tell us, they're like, I have friends. And, you know, if you remember what it was like to be a teenager, I do. Uh, friends can be as much the source of trouble as they are you know, the source of comfort. And what they told us instead were these very, these these sort of critical five dimensions, these five dimensions about how adults can productively show up in a young person's life um, to really have the kind of influence and authority that young people are looking for and that adults are you know, trying to have with them. And one piece of that is expertise. You know, you, it does, young people do want to know that adults sort of have it together, <laughs> at least on, in some area. They don't expect you to be perfect by any stretch. But, that but might be bad have... news for some people listening, <laughs> especially right now in 2021, <laughs> month number 10 of the pandemic. I don't know. Anybody's got it together. But let's say, you know, normal life, most of us do. But but to, together in like some aspect, right? Like maybe you're a good parent or you got a good job or you're financially secure or something, right? Um, I think the mistake that we've been making uh, is based in, in, a, in, a, in a truth. And the truth was that for a long time, expertise was all that it took. As long as we could convey to a young person, like, I'm the source of knowledge in a world where there's high levels of institutional trust, that was enough. It was cool. Like, oh, great. Like, that he, you know, he works for that institution. He seems like an expert. I'm going to listen to him and do what he says. By the way, I have a PhD. As I mentioned, I I teach college classes and I wish that were still enough, but it is not. (laughs) My students just, you know, do not listen to me only because uh, I have a PhD. They don't listen to me until they think that I have their best interests in mind as opposed to the university's best interests in mind. Mm. Um, Mm. And that's where we get to these other four characteristics of listening, transparency, integrity, and care. And these are very specific dimensions. And so not only do they work on an individual level, but this is also the key if you're running, you know, if you are running a youth ministry, this is the key to training people to scale this. Because at some level, you know, you can only hold so many relationships with young people yourself. Yeah. But if you look at other professions who who basically manage relationships for their jobs, salespeople, fundraisers, et cetera, you know, they, they hold relationships with with dozens, sometimes hundreds of people. And the way they do that is through systems. And, and I think we need to get as sophisticated about our relationship systems as we've been about our program systems. Um, and this is, this is definitely the time to do it during a pandemic because relationships matter more now than ever. 
Unlike Zach, I didn't really get anything out of youth. I wasn't a part of a youth group. I kind of did the basic CCD, got confirmed, and that was it for high school. Um, So when I think about the relationships that mattered to me staying in the church, it was basically just my mom. So I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if any of this, (laughs) does this only apply to youth ministers or are there things that parents can take from from your findings? No, 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 no. I mean, this is a, I think, you know, these are the kinds of things that apply to trusted adults in general. So at Springtide, what, what we like to, to say and do is that we stand on the basis of sound social science and research, and we let people bring their various theological systems, their religious systems and beliefs to it. And sometimes that's no religious system. So the stuff we're trying to, you know, convey here is, is based on good sound social science from, you know, not only the data we've collected, but what other people have done. And this is some basic fundamental stuff here about how to do relationships with young people and why it's important that we have included in this report. It works for parents, it works for coaches. We framed it here through the lens of religion. Now, is the most common question that you get, uh, dear Dr. Packard, how do I keep my child, grandchild, nephew, niece in the church? It's <laughs> 100% the most common question that we get, yeah. <laughs> is, that, is that the right question to ask today? It's, it's the right question to ask in the sense that it is reflective of you know, where people are in their own journey. The questioner, not, not the grandchild. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I think there's something, it's sort of revealing about what needs to be honored there, that it's a tradition that is really important to them. And we don't want to throw out that tradition. It, is it the right question to ask in the sense of like, is, is the answer there super effective? I mean, probably not. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, when I give the answer that I think is accurate, it, it's not necessarily one that is well taken. And the answer that I think is accurate is given where we're at. And I think the church's slow response in this situation it's the what we should be focused on doing right now is meeting the basic needs of young people um, and forming relationships with them so that you know we can be a part of of their conversation uh, about religion moving forward as they're sort of looking around at the you know detritus around them of social life and trying to figure out how to make a meaningful life out of it you want to you want to be one of the sticks that they use to build their spiritual home that's a longer play I mean, I think the time for short-term wins would have been to take the disaffiliation research really seriously 10 or 15 years ago when it first started coming out, but the church didn't do that. So now we've got to play the long game. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's incredibly exciting. I mean, I don't know how many more lock-ins youth ministers really want to program. The ones we talked to are done with them anyway. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, in many ways, the research that we do is, is we find that People with their boots on the ground, they look at us and they're like, you know, either rolling their eyes because they're like, we've known this for years or saying just like, thank you for giving us some some names and data for the stuff we've been experiencing. It's it's really the church leaders that need to wrap their heads around this. Um, if you listen, if you listen to your youth ministers, they know. If you listen to your volunteers, like they see this exact same thing. They might not know it as systematically as what we've laid it out um, at Springtide, but they see that young people are, you know, suffering. You, you can't, you can't get a young person to understand the ins and outs and nuances of a moral prescriptive system, you know, like the Ten Commandments, if they're suffering from a mental health crisis, which so many young people are, and increasingly more of them as this pandemic goes on. So if you're not doing that kind of work, I don't know what you are doing. To take one example, you know what I mean? Like, people who are on the ground, they get it. Yeah. You mentioned we're still in the middle of this pandemic, um, which has left many people um, and it seems like especially young people feeling isolated and lonely, um, mental health issues have gone up. What from your research, um, 
what does it tell you about the best way that the church or just anyone can be supporting each other in this time? Well, look, check this out. So we did a survey right as the stay-at-home orders came out last year in March, and we're going to follow that up uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks. We're going to put a, a new study out in the field and start doing new interviews and talking with more young people. Um, and it was startling. The two pieces of data jumped out of the page, uh, jumped off the page for us uh, with that with that study, and one of which was the incredibly low number of young people who had been reached out to by a religious leader during what was I don't know if y'all. I mean, I distinctly remember what that was like. It was scary. You know, not know, and it was less than one percent of young people had been reached out to by a religious leader just to check in and see how they were doing. Uh, at the same time, we saw a surprising number of young people who were who had started a new religious activity, behavior, ritual, uh, just in the first two weeks. So right at the moment when young people were like trying to make sense of the world, all of their experts and guides in this area were like, you know, MIA. What I think it shows is that you know, not just in times of crisis, but in times of uncertainty, which all young people go through, pandemic or otherwise, there's a natural exploration, a turn to religion and trying to make sense of it. And I think that is where we can show up for young people, especially as we start returning to schools in the fall, start trying to figure out what a summer of some kind of potential normalcy might look like. Yeah. So there is like an opportunity here because I know in my own parish, like when this, when everything shut down, it was like, we had this meeting it's like, okay, we can't do everything. What is like, what is the one thing that like people need from us in in this moment that they can only get from the church and like, let's focus on that. And so it does seem like now that we've like pared everything down um, and we, you know, have studies like yours to see what the real, situation on the ground is you know the opportunity is there for taking if people are willing to like let go of their old old programs <laughs> yeah right literally sometimes well and i yeah. think actually like what are re- what are religious professionals and volunteers what are they actually i mean they are trained sense makers you know they help you make sense of the world and there has never been a time at least recently that needed and required more expert help in terms of making sense of things than right now and how great it would be for religious leaders to marshal all of their abilities, you know, to bear for young people to help them make sense of what had just happened. I mean, they've been, they've been robbed of graduations and proms and, you know, they've been stuck inside homes that are not always the best places to be. They've been, you know, dealing with financial and food insecurity and on and on and on. And, and how do you reconcile God in the middle of all of that? We need our religious leaders to step into that conversation. You know, it's, it's, a, it's so critical. Well, I think that this document that not just this one, but everything that you guys have been putting out at Springtide is, is useful for anyone who is who is trying to do that or is nervous about doing that. So thank you to you um, for all that you're doing to to make it easier for the rest of us that are trying to chat with young people about things that are making no sense right now. <laughs> um, Josh, we do have one final question for you. Um, something we ask all our guests. If you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Okay. So I was given the heads up about this question and, and we, um, we had quite a, a, a go at it at our weekly team meeting as everybody had input. <laughs> um, Saint by committee is a dangerous <laughs> thing. Been, yeah. Yeah. Really. I know we do it. This is literally what we do in the yeah. church is Saint by committee. Saint by committee. Hopefully it went a little quicker than, uh, normal. Yeah. It was great. It was so revealing. Um, okay. I'm going to give you two answers So, and, and I'll be quick. Uh, one is Jane Adams. So Jane Adams in the, uh, the turn of the century, she was deeply involved in the women's rights movement and is a, a female 
in, in academia and activism who was intimately involved with the founding of two academic disciplines, both social work and sociology. She won the Nobel Peace Prize. She was an advisor to presidents. It was a remarkable like role for her to play as a woman, especially I mean, for any person, period, um, let alone her gender at that time when that kind of stuff was even harder. People should know more about Jane Addams and the kind of impact she had on, this, on just the idea of a social safety net in, in this country is, is remarkable. And the second would be Frances Hesselbein, the transformative leader of the Girl Scouts, uh, who from the late 70s and, and through the 1980s. So Frances, who was not trained professionally, was a volunteer Girl Scout organizer, took over as CEO of the Girl Scouts when they couldn't hire anybody to do it and immediately embraced diversity and real world skills as the sort of core of the Girl Scouts mission. And, and you know, now you see what that organization is today, which is it's it's a much different one than it was that she inherited <laughs> in the middle of the 1970s where it was sort of cross-stitching and, you know, homemaking and stuff like that. And the Girl Scouts are a transformative organization for a lot of people's lives. And she was the leader right at the forefront of it without any formal training. She was remarkable. Ah, that's great. As a daughter of a lifelong Girl Scout, I know my mom will be very happy to <laughs> hear, hear that. What was what was the full name again? Frances Hesselbein. Okay. All right. She has a woeful Wikipedia page for anybody who wants to write that wrong. Oh, okay. okay. All right. I, yeah. There's got to be a listener out there that uh, who is a Girl Scout who, you know, absolutely can pull this yeah. off. <laughs> All right. The title of the report is the State of Religion and Young People 2020 Relational Authority from Springtide Research Institute. Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Zach. And I'll just put out a, one one other little plug next week. Thanks to a generous donation from a foundation, we have the Catholic edition, the Catholic-specific edition of that report coming out, and you can find that on our website as well. Oh, fantastic. Awesome. We will definitely be linking to both of those. All right, Josh, thanks so much. Thank you. All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? We first off want to thank our new Patreon supporters. So shout out this week to Anna Eisen and Adrian Kelly. Thank you both so much for signing up this past week. And all of our Patreon supporters, you know, we say your name one time on the show. We really should more, but it it means so much to us that you all contribute and help keep this show going. So you can you can join them if you're enjoying this show. Um, there are two ways to support Jesuitical. One is by subscribing to America Magazine, and you can do that at americamagazine.org, but also supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash americamedia. Yes, and a couple of the articles that you will have access to if you get a digital subscription. We didn't get to the second biggest story of last weekend, which was the interview on Oprah <laughs> or with Oprah uh, and Prince Harry and Meghan, but we've got we've got some some different takes on that episode uh, on our website right now that I don't think you want to miss. Right. So if you're looking for some Catholic content on the Meghan and Harry interview, um, we've got Father Matt Malone, who you've heard on the show, who um, has uh, I don't know a. Uh, 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 it's not a negative take, but it's it's a little bit. He, it's taking the historical long view, which is kind of his 
cup of tea. Yeah. So the the headline is the contradictions of the interview. So points out some some holes in it. And then our own producer, uh, Maggie Van Dorn, um, who has followed the royal family um, with some gusto for a while now, put up a really moving piece about, you know, how much it, you know, Megan might be unique in her her position of um, where she's her celebrity, but the suffering that she shared really isn't. And there's something for Catholics to learn and honor and sharing of that suffering. So if you're looking for those dueling takes, you got to check it out. We'll put it in our show notes and it's at americamagazine.org where you can read those and all kinds of Catholic content. All right. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God in our lives this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? I have a Consolation this week, um, and it, it was a little ephemeral or ephemeral. Father Eric and I couldn't figure out how to say that word. So we just, we both would just (laughs) not the right person. No, I know. Um, so we're just committing with both, but I'm going to try and make it tangible. And basically like this Lent, I have focused on really not trying to add a list of things that I need to be doing. Um, and that sounds like a cop out, but, um, I'm trying to give myself some space to, I don't know, listen to the invitations when they come up for, to, to do things that are more self-denial or, or, or to get closer with God. And um, one of those things that's come up, I think, and I think that's been successful for a couple of reasons, but one this week, as I was reading the story in the New York Times about someone who was really into running and the pandemic happened and they basically stopped. And um, she interviewed a psychologist that works with athletes. And, and he explained that, I, and this makes a lot of sense, that sometimes you are you are really tired and you need rest. And other times your brain is just tricking you into like lethargy, basically, in that like it feels so hard to get up and do something. And when that's the case, you really just kind of got to do stuff. And I was like, man, that's so true about the spiritual life as well, right? Like sometimes there really is dryness. There's nothing there. And other times, like, I swear that your brain just like tricks you into thinking that there's nothing going on and that you, you can't pray. And, and really what you need to do is like a kind of, I don't know, you need a swift kick in the butt from someone that loves you to say like, look, you just gotta, you gotta pray. I don't know. That's why the Jesuits call the, do the whole spiritual exercises thing. Right. It's just exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, so my takeaway from that was I went on a run twice this week with the warm weather. I don't know. I feel like the, I was able to turn that into a prayer of sorts by not, you know, focusing on all the things that I need to be doing this Lent. Um, I don't know. There's all these invitations in the consolation that I feel like I'm able to delve into more. So that's my ephemeral or ephemeral consolation this week. (laughs) What do you got this week? First, I have to say that. So I, you know, I'm regularly run in prospect park and this week felt like you know january 1st at the gym where (laughs) everyone has flocked (laughs) to the to the outdoor track (laughs) (laughs) yeah i was among those people so i uh i i I apologize to all you uh real runners (laughs) it's it's great great to have more people out there except the bikers they're so mean like another one yelled at me the other day and i just you know the church like is like the running path it's a place for sinners (laughs) <laughs> not not the already converted that i'm gonna yes. i'm gonna hold to that yeah also a guy who like wears an american flag and rides a unicycle like everyone is welcome that hey, is someone I, I really I, saw that <laughs> i would like to see him at, at mass as well as the <laughs> uh, what, what do you got this week uh i'll just have to d- explain it because i can't name it <laughs> Um, so basically, you know, I, I called, I called father Sundrup, um, and, you know, I was like, I got a desolation, you know, um, 
we're we're marking a year of the covid pandemic and so like a lot of people i'm looking back and i'm like instead of focusing on the great things that have happened to me like becoming a aunt and godmother and getting a new position at work like all i can think about is the fact that i've had a year to like make myself a better person um and i haven't (laughs) like you know everything has been pared back. I've got all this extra time. I have time for quiet and reflection. And like, what do I have to show for it? Um, and Eric was like, well, I don't believe that. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, like, I don't know. Like, do you think your sister made you a godmother because she had to, or because she loves you and that you've like now stepped into a role where you're helping your niece into the life of faith? And I was like, well, yeah, Okay, but like (laughs) still. (laughs) And so he kept like pushing me and pushing me. And he was like, so have you, you know, gotten any more clarity about what you want once this is all over? And I was like, well, honestly, it's just shown me that I'm not in control and that whatever timeline I had for my life, like a global pandemic can happen and throw that off. So why I don't need to be so attached to timelines and these artificial like goalposts I set set for myself. He's like, well didn't that take some reflection and hard work and prayer? And I was like, well, yeah. (laughs) I was like, darn it, Eric, you've turned my desolation into a consolation. He's like, aha, you say that to God all the time. I was like, oh, (laughs) that's true. That's that that swift kick in the butt I was talking about earlier. Sometimes you just need it, yeah. Yeah, and he he was like, he had, I don't know. So like, I'm sorry to just like relay my conversation with Eric, but it really was just like really helpful for me. He's like, you know, beating yourself up is a form of control because it means like, you know, (laughs) you, you're the one who gets to decide like where you're failing and what opportunities there are for you for growth and where God's working. It's just, you know, that's your ego trying to, to cut out god's god's role um so it was it was a very fruitful conversation usually i've talked about like kind of like dreading (laughs) having to open up about these things with father sundra but it was a good one so it was a desolation turned consolation um in the process (laughs) control is such a huge thing i that's super relatable i i I think everyone listening to this will have i can can relate to that who who among us hasn't set artificial goalposts yeah yeah (laughs) Alrighty, I'll get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.